0: We're moving on to panel three, which is on economics and trade relations, and our first speaker is Professor Alan Lehearn, who is Professor of Economics here in NUI Galway and Director of the Whitaker Institute, and Alan has worked in the Federal Reserve Board in the United States, and um, a, he is very—he's a member of the Board of the Central Bank of Ireland, and he has a very distinguished career as an economist, and he is going to in 15 minutes, tell us the impact of Brexit on the Irish economy, which will be quite an achievement, Alan, and I really look forward to it.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Mary. A kind introduction. Um, I guess thinking about the effects of Brexit on the Irish economy, it it really depends on what sort of Brexit we have. I mean, putting it simply, the harder the Brexit... Then the worse it's going to be for the Irish economy. The softer the Brexit, then the less damage is going to be done. Uh, and what's been interesting over the last couple of weeks, um, I guess, as the risk of a really hard Brexit, a cliff edge Brexit, where on the, we all arrive here, we all arrive to work on the 30th of March and there's no deal put in place and all hell has broke loose, as the risk of that increased, a um, number of institutions started to run simulations and scenarios and do analysis of what the impact of the Irish economy would be of that sort of really hard, no-deal, cliff-edge Brexit. Um, and, and what they pointed to was different channels through which, or mechanisms through which, that sort of Brexit would affect the Irish economy. Um, and there are a number. One is that um, if you, if you look at financial markets, financial markets are relatively optimistic about Brexit. They have... Priced in a soft Brexit, uh, so if we get anything worse than that, a really hard Brexit, it's going to cause stress in financial markets. Um, exchange rates are unforecastable. Uh, you flip a coin; it's as good a chance of uh, it'll t- be good a predictor of where exchange rates would go as anything else. But it, economic logic would tell you that if we get a cliff edge. Brexit that's unexpected, that would hit sterling and the sterling would fall and that would obviously be damaging for for the Irish economy. Um, These models also try to model the impact on consumer and business confidence. Because if we get a cliff edge Brexit, presumably people will be thinking, well, is my job safe? Particularly if you're working for a company that's exporting to the UK and people start getting worried about their jobs and about their income and they tend to reduce their spending and that is reduces overall spending in, in the Irish economy. Similarly, businesses who might be investing, and in business investment investment has been strong in Ireland uh, over the last couple of years, they may pull back on their spending on new plant and equipment and machinery if they're very worried about, uh, about the impact on their businesses of, of, of Brexit. We would have disruptions at ports and airports. So the infrastructure is not in place at the moment to be able to deal with uh, new customs arrangements customer procedures uh, and so we we'd, we'd see disruptions uh, and there uh, that's obviously bad bad for trade and bad for, for the Irish economy and there would be a negative effect on Irish exports to the UK and indeed further afield and on imports from the UK if you think of exports um, the UK accounts for about 13% of, of export goods so about one in eight of our exports goes to the UK UK is the biggest Trading partner for Ireland, not the biggest export market, but we import a lot. So it's the biggest trading partner. So one in eight of our exports goes to the UK. That's that's big, and it's it's much bigger than anybody else in the EU. The next biggest, uh, say Cyprus or a couple of Scandinavian countries, is about eight percent. So we're disproportionately large amount of our exports goes to the UK. If we do get a cliff edge Brexit, then the UK will almost certainly go into a recession. The Bank of England are expecting. Um, a drop in 8% of GDP in the UK uh, in, the, in, the, in, uh, in the event of a, of a hard Brexit. That's a very, very deep, that's, that's a qu- about the same uh, drop in GDP as we got in 2009 when the bubble collapsed. So we're talking about a very, very deep uh, recession in the UK. That's what the Bank of England are expecting if we have a, 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 a no-deal Brexit. That obviously affects our exports because income has fallen there and they won't buy as many, uh, as much of our stuff. Tariffs would go up. Because if they leave, uh, they then apply WTO-type tariffs, and those are, can, for some, some sectors, can be very high. Uh, if you have very high tariffs, so if you have um, agriculture, say uh, beef you're trying to sell, and there's a 70% tariff put on beef, uh, would, should be, you should be trying to sell it for 100 pounds sterling, but it would cost uh, 170 sterling because it's 70%, 70% tariff put on. That would make Irish beef extremely uncompetitive, very hard to sell that sort of stuff. Uh, so that would affect our our our, our, our exports of, of those products. And there'd be lots of sort of non-tariff barriers as, associated with customs, clearance, and, and whatnot. It's also the case, although we, we tend to focus on the exports, we, we import an awful lot from the UK. Um, about uh, um, somewhere between 25 and 30% of our overall imports of goods comes from the UK. And again, that is outsized in the sense that the next biggest in the EU, is probably around 6%. We have between 25 and 30%, depending on how you measure, of our goods imports come from, from the, the UK. Um, you, could th- you could break it down into consumers and businesses buying imported in goods. For consumers, if you go into the supermarket, on average, about two in every three products have come via the UK. What I mean is that either they were manufactured in the UK or they came from someplace else, but use the UK as a land bridge. So two out of three products will, will have come through to the UK uh, in, in some form. Uh, and there will be disruption, potentially disruptions to them, disruption in the sense that the price of them may go up or we won't be able to buy lots of that stuff. So, uh, Because what's happened is our supermarkets are very, some of them are, a lot of the big ones are UK-based uh, and they are very integrated into, into global supply chains. Um, similarly, um, with... Businesses, uh, their supply chains, buying intermediate inputs, stuff that they bring in here, and they do a bit more processes, processing on them either to sell or to to export abroad again. They would be they would be d- disrupted. Um, it was just in passing. It was it was good. Uh, the the re- recent omnibus bill that went through uh, or is going through the DAW d- at the moment. Um, one of the things that they have done there is. Um, particularly for small businesses, there was a, a lot of worry that uh, on the VAT front that uh, at the moment businesses make VAT returns every, every two months. Uh, but uh, if you're importing from a country outside of the EU, a third country, then the VAT would have to be paid as it comes in. And so that would really hit businesses' cash flow. Um, but the yeah, omnibus bill uh, allows to keep in place that, that arrangement. Uh, but there still would be uh, stuff that businesses... Uh, are not familiar with importing from the UK, Uh, stuff that comes in through, uh, um, before it gets released from customs, um, there has to be a a customs bond offered to the customs authorities, the revenue, uh, so that they don't get stuck with with the goods. Uh, Very few businesses know how to engage with that, and and it's not even clear that, that the financial service companies and banks uh, although they do some of those products, they don't do that much. So they would have to, to gear up, and, and it's worth looking at the Revenue Commissioners. They did some a presentation, a slide about sort of red tape and the declarations, things you have to have to sign. I mean, it is really quite frightening. Uh, now, maybe it just doesn't suit me, but uh, the amount of paperwork, the stuff that you have to fill out if you're importing from a third country, is is really uh, quite striking. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of smaller businesses would have to hire agents and people to do that sort of sort of <coughs> work for them. But that obviously adds to their costs and makes them less competitive. And they would presumably have to push on a lot of those costs to, to consumers. Um, if you put all that together, what the, for example, what the Central Bank of Ireland came up with recently when they put all this into an economic model, uh, they reckoned, they estimated that um, a hard Brexit like this would knock about four percentage points off GDP growth. Um, so it's a in the, in, in the first year, and then another 2% in, in year two. Um, so that's a big number. Um, it's not as, um, as I mentioned earlier, in 2009, uh, sort of the, the worst year of the uh, financial crisis, our economy contracted probably around 8 or 9%. So they're not predicting another 2000 a financial crisis. It's not that it's not that bad. Uh, you don't have the knock-on effects to banks and stuff that like we saw back in 2008 and 9 and 10. In fact, the European banking system is probably pretty well prepared for for a Brexit. But it's still a, it's a big chunk of change, and it, it's it's a blow. To, it would be certainly a blow to the Irish economy. The Irish economy is forecast to grow about four percent next year. So you knock four percent off that. Four minus four is zero. Essentially, what they're saying, what the models are saying, is that the Irish economy will be more or less flat next year and then grow a little bit the following year uh, if we have if if, uh, if they get this uh, uh, disruption. So it, it it's it's not as bad as the Great Financial Crisis in terms of the impact, but uh, it's certainly it's certainly a significant hit. Um, so first, that's maybe if so. I was talking about hard Brexit there. If if we have a softer Brexit, then those, those numbers are smaller. A 4% is for a soft Brexit is probably 2%, and it's spread out more. So if we get a, for example, if Theresa May's withdrawal agreement went through, which is a fairly soft Brexit, uh, then you'd be looking at, from these models, uh, 2% loss in GDP, but spread out over five or more years. That would, at an overall level, would, would, uh, you'd hardly feel it. Certain sectors would feel it, but from the overall economic perspective, uh, that would not, that would, not be, that would be bad. So I guess fingers crossed for, for a soft Brexit. Um, the, I, I should say that those models that produce those sort of numbers, they're good at capturing sort of predictable effects, but they're not good at uh, capturing sort of unpredictable stuff by definition, and a lot of unpredictable things could happen. So, um, so we have to take those numbers with a grain of salt. second key message, I guess, is that uh, what I'm giving you is overall numbers and overall picture, uh, but the impact won't, will be very different by sectors of the economy and by region. And that's an important. So when we talk about what is the overall impact, uh, in a way, that disguises a lot of stuff because it's going to be very different impacts in different places. Let's say we, we end up with, with no trade deal. Let's say it's an orderly Brexit or disorderly, but we end up with no trade deal, so we revert to WTO-type tariffs. The thing is that those tariffs um, are very different for different products. I already mentioned 70% for chilled beef. Uh, for food products, they tend to be high. Um, for other products, say high-tech products, they tend to be very low. So go would produce a lot of medical device-type stuff. They would have basically zero or hardly any tarot put on them. So different businesses, different sectors would get hit very differently because they would face very different... Uh, very different tariffs. So that's one dimension uh, that causes a difference across sectors. The other is that um, sectors you could be a sector be hit with a very high tariff, but if it doesn't export much to the UK, well, then it's not going to be a big deal. Um, but it turns out that the, the sector that that um, Going to would get hit with the highest tariff from the WTO. Agri food is also a sector that exports more to the UK as a portion of its total exports. So, 40% of agri food exports go to the UK. Um, about 11, uh, uh, our total agri food exports is about 11 billion, and about uh, 40% of uh, 4.5 billion goes to the UK. 4 billion to, uh, let's call it Great Britain or mainland Britain. And half a billion to to Northern to Northern Ireland. That's about the same in, in Euro as um, as goes to um, as chemicals, for example. We export a lot of chemicals in the UK as well, but we export a lot of much more chemicals to the rest of the world. So the share of total exports, we are disproportionately uh, agri-, agri food is disproportionately exposed to the to the UK. Um, these different models, the different studies have have, have shown that. Uh, in the event of hard Brexit and WTO Brexit with some non-tariff barriers as well, we could see drops between 30 and 50% in our food exports to uh, to the UK. So you can see that, uh, although um, one can talk about these aggregate numbers for certain sectors and for certain producers, uh, a hard Brexit could be could be could be disastrous and, and, and devastating. Um, it also um, we get different differences. Of, and the impact across regions. And there's a couple of dimensions to that. Um, one is that some regions produce a lot of agri-food. There is a big, big part of their economy. Uh, so if, for example, the border region, uh, um, employment in agri-food is about 14% of total employment where in the, in the, in the state, and it holds about 8%. So a disproportionately large amount of employment is accounted for by agri-food in the border. And what's worse than that, of course, is that that the border, that the Ireland, Northern Ireland trade relations are closer in the border region than in, in anywhere else. In other words, the border region uh, would, la- would uh, almost certainly get uh, a disproportionately large hit in the case of, of, of a hard Brexit. One other, and I'll finish on this, one other thing is that um, these models also capture that there are some positives, there might be some positives to Brexit. One of them is foreign direct investment, and that some businesses would leave the UK and set up in Ireland in order to be able to sell, continue to sell into the EU, financial services, for example. Uh, so I was in, up at the Central Bank yesterday, and uh, if you walk around, start at the at the Tree Arena, I think it's now called, the Tree Arena, and walk up along the docks, and it's incredible. The place is just uh, a building site. Massive buildings going up everywhere. Look across the river, you see Bank of America Lynch, uh, Barclays will be going in there, other uh, investment banks. Huge amount of financial services companies come to Dublin. All, not all the building is Brexit related, but some of it is. So that's foreign direct investment into Ireland a positive effect uh, from Brexit. But those effects are likely to be fed in urban areas, and particularly in Dublin. Uh, but you won't get those sort of uh, cushioning or offsetting effects in, in, in the regions, and particularly in the regions that have higher agri-food. They're going to be the hardest hit, and then they don't get this positive element from, from FDI. So two messages. Um, the harder the Brexit, the worse it will be, and uh, the exposure And therefore, the impact varies very much by sector and by region. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alan. Magnificently concise and really very clearly expressed um, our next speaker is John grain John is director general of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce which he co-founded in 2011 which is really to represent businesses with British and Irish interests it's remarkably how late it's remarkable how late that happened to John I would say and he he has previously a long career with the Royal Bank of Scotland which is the Ulster Bank group here in Ireland and he's involved in an immense number of boards and organisations in the whole business of trade, culture, tourism and therefore has extraordinarily wide experience of British-Irish uh, economic and business relations um, and I look forward to hearing you. Thanks
2: very much. Thanks very much, Mary, and thanks again to uh, Catherine and the whole team in organising a really important event here in Galway. Um, so, who am I? It's Mr. Sean of I was born in Drogheda in, in the, the late 50s. There you are, you have some great strengths in common already. Uh, when I was a kid in Drogheda, before my mummy got me a job on the bank, uh, about which see me after school, um, Drogheda was a fine historic town with lots of things to talk about, but actually didn't have a great employment base. We were basically set up in, at that point in, as part of the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement, for those who might, might remember that part of our relationship with the UK. And basically we made bad shoes for bad customers at bad prices in a bad market. And that wasn't a whole lot of fun. And the good people at Drada got a pretty bad rap out of that. So when I was uh, a little bit later uh, observing and other people, and the wonderful uh, Irish civil servants, public servants who took us into the EU, had a reasonable consciousness that, uh, from a first-hand experience, including being able to see Northern Ireland from just just across the River Boyne, that this was generally a good thing to be doing, and it has delivered on all of that. So, uh, while I talk about business, all business is personal, just like all politics is local, and we do talk about the voice of business. I heard it in the room this morning. So what I'm going to talk about is a couple of quick things about Brexit, sort of purely, but I really am interested in seeing how the discussion widens out to talk about the role of business in all of this, which hasn't always been universally uh, a, a well-delivered role and isn't generally a well-represented role. First of all, the British Irish Chamber of Commerce, in case you wonder wondering what that's about, is a small but perfectly formed organization obsessed with just one thing, and that's the trade between these two great islands. That supports, as Steve said this morning... Um, 72 billion pounds worth of of, of euros worth of two-way trade every year, Um, 400,000 jobs directly in the manufacture and the delivery of those goods and services, many hundred thousands more uh, in the supply chain and communities around them. When we talk about business, we don't actually talk about the dividends that a green corp produces every year or the return on capital that... Uh, a CRH delivers, or indeed a Royal Bank of Scotland. But the reason we talk about business at all is because the well-being of people in villages and townlands and communities, not just in cities, the length and breadth of these two islands, is delivered not ultimately by politicians, but at the behest of civic society and, and uh, political policy-making. it's delivered by businesses. Businesses are the people who will ultimately employ the jobs that are benign or other political environment will enable the conditions for. So I make no apologies for the business voice, and indeed I spend a lot of time encouraging the business voice to be louder and prouder for what we do, but to update the contract, the common contract between the three Cs, as I call them commerce, culture, and community, which is kind of what we're talking about here today and tomorrow. Um, As an organisation, we pride ourselves on not being shouty or noisy or pointing the finger or saying somebody should be doing something about this. We like to think of ourselves as people who propose business-like solutions for the toughest job of all, politics, to get over the line in terms of the disparate voices of of communities. So my team, I'm proud to say, produced a piece of work some 17 months ago now called Brexit uh, Principles, The Big Principles for a Strong Brexit Partnership, uh, how to make Brexit work for all. It's a small, unput downable light read. I frequently put it beside my locker. And uh, it reminds me that actually you don't have to go on and on, you just have to focus on what what did the people want to achieve, why was that brought about, and and how short a volume could you produce a piece of work that describes what a solution might look like. I won't bore you, I have some free copies, obviously, to plug the brand, but the serious point is, I'm delighted to tell you that where we're nudging towards, and I believe we are nudging towards a pullback, if that's not a contradiction from the brink, will look awfully like this package in hopefully just a short few weeks' time. A brief word on preparedness, for those who are interested in how ready is Irish business or indeed UK business and Northern Irish business for Brexit in any form, um, there is no preparedness for Armageddon. Big business, highly regulated industries like banks, financial services and big pharmaceuticals are fully prepared because by law they've had to be. That's their license to practice. Uh, Small business, mom and pop SMEs, who make up 98% of all companies on these two islands by number... uh, and that includes farming, by the way, cannot prepare until they're told what the deal actually is. They don't have the money, the time, or the bandwidth uh, to be distracted by the potential for all sorts of different scenarios. So let nobody tell you they're prepared. And most businesses, and some of our greatest friends are in the agencies like Enterprise Ireland, who will give you €2,000 to get ready. Most small businesses will say, thanks for that, I haven't the time to fill out the 27 pages. I'll just keep going, and when, you, when, when I know what I need to do, I shall do it then. What we're really worried about are mid-scale Irish businesses, of whom Ireland is now very good at producing. I won't name names, but think of the many now household names of Irish food, for instance, which are neither Kerry Group or Glanbia at the one hand, or Farmgate, you know, um, uh, farm shops on the other. There are loads of household names in food, which are significant Irish employers, north and south, by the way, and they... Are highly exposed to the UK trade, where a Sainsbury's or a Marks and Sparks will say, "This is a big, big problem, and by the way, it's your problem." Your truck will still pull out, pull up outside our door at not 10 past eight or 20 past eight, but at exactly 11 past eight tomorrow morning, in the middle of Huddersfield, and you will make sure that the product is as good as ever it was before. So everything will be backed up. I won't even begin to bore you with that, but that's why we have to pull back from the worst case. So I want to talk about the less than worst case for. The- couple of minutes. Um, There's a theme under this that talks about where the hell has business been for the last two and a half years on this topic. It's been mentioned once or twice this morning. Um, A couple of explainers. If you're looking at our friends in the UK, and they are our friends in the UK, and you're wondering how how come people like the CBI or the largest organisation of businesses in Britain, uh, the Federation of Small Businesses, think uh, Small Firms Association in Ireland, have been less than fulsome in their positioning on Brexit. Uh, CBI, probably the more fulsome of them. Uh, still 20% of CBS, that's like IBEX in Britain. Big, big British industry, global industries. 20% of their members want a hard leave. The Scottish distillery industry aren't exactly in, uh, interested in being confined by EU law. Tate & Lyle, the sugar makers, aren't exactly interested in, in only growing uh, uh, producing EU sugar. They want to bring it in from cane sugar from the West Indies. So do, don't believe that everybody feels the same. If you're in the Federation of Small Business, you are made up of essentially SME, largely family-owned businesses, you know by now that families themselves are torn apart in Britain on the ethos question of am I for or against this Leviathan thing called Europe? And as I will definitely say, Europe, came up this morning, definitely needs a PR makeover, but so also does the voice of business. And I'm part of that, and we call this wrong. We call it wrong before, we call it wrong in Lisbon 1 in Ireland. I was part of the team that uh, ran the second... Uh, PR campaign by business the first PR campaign into the second referendum and we reckon that the four percentage point uh, swing was, was at least half of that was in, influenced by the business voice so it can be done and we need to do it, we need to help business people and some of you are directly and all of you are indirectly associated with the production of things, goods and services in this great city and in this great country we, we can't go around blaming somebody else for why employers are not A. speaking up and B. getting a bad rap in the middle of this I talk about not wasting a good crisis. So we're actually only starting, as has been observed this morning as well. The reality is that we've spent two and a half years just getting to the starting point, because assuming the non-worst-case scenario, but some other version less than that, then in a few weeks' time, we start a process, which is probably going to take about 10 years, and may not be uniform across every sector, where basically, whatever you thought about the teamwork on this so far, it's all about to get reset, and some of it is about to collapse. Because at the minute, Ireland has been in the incredible position, the Republic of Ireland, of being unanimously supported in our political stance on our position in relation to Brexit, vis-à-vis our great friends in the UK, by 26 other EU member states. From April Fool's Day, that's over. We are now 27 states, each fighting on our ownio for the bits that matter to us on our ownio. So France wants media and digital. Italy will want certain branches of technology. Germany will want heavy manufacturing. France will want the wine and the cheese industry, etc., etc., etc. There is no plan to have a plan for what we're going to do when that, shall we say, jamboree starts. And we need to get our act together in that particular space. We need to get it together from the point of view of the all-island economy, which we're talking about today. But we also need to get it together in terms of this island's relationship with our neighbouring island. Let me tell you, the... The two islands, of, and Mary rightly said, were we only born seven years ago, William Haig, when he launched the project with Steve and myself seven or eight years ago, said, what happened for the previous 800 years? And I said, do you mean the previous 800 years of oppression? And he said, I suppose that's really the point, all right. The, the Br- British-Irish relationship has been one of all sorts of ups and downs, but we've always traded, since the Vikings learned how to sail a boat across the pond and taught us, we've always had... Surpluses in one side, whether they be bad shoes in Drogheda or more likely are wonderful foodstuffs and shortages in Britain. Britain will still need to produce the balance of the 100% of its food that it only gets from 60% of its own production. It it imports 40% of its food. It has to do. It doesn't make enough food. Ireland will need to export the 80% of food that we don't eat. The world's best food, but we've got to find customers for it. And today's market structure, the EU, is the very best way of doing that in a way that allows our British friends to still consume their favorite food, what they call British and Irish beef. If you go into McDonald's in the UK, it's not called British beef, it's called British and Irish beef, proudly so. Our British friends love that. They love it for its quality, for its provenance, for its traceability, and they also love it for its value for money. It's not the cheapest, but they they like it at this price. If, we, if, if anything interrupts that, then, as Alan and others have talked about, we really do have a very serious problem. So we need to go into the next round of all of this with a very clear head about saying, what are we going to do with our friend next door over whom some will pour over its carcass trade-wise? So let me give you an example. There is, I mean, 65 million people still got to eat, they still got to go to work every day, they still have such jobs as they will have and they'll have a lot of jobs, believe you me, they still got to clothe themselves, they got to take a holiday, they got to learn some stuff, they got to go on an education or a higher education phase in their life, they got to read a book, they got to uh, consume media, they got to do all the things that you and I have to do every day. That market isn't going away anywhere anytime soon. The very, the very best people who can produce what they need to import, what they can't make themselves, are us. We speak more or less the same language, we have pretty much the same laws. Actually, where we diverge on laws, interestingly enough, even as part of the EU, is because the EU allows us to diverge. The EU already allows Britain to have different food safety inspection standards than we do in Ireland. So it's not like the EU is some sort of bear trap where we're all you know, stuck with having to comply with everything. In Britain, the, the law on production of packets of smoked salmon requires a sticker to be put on the a transparent plastic pouch, to say, contains fish. For most consumers in Britain, they think that's a little bleeding obvious. But actually, the people, and I know them, who complain about that silly European law in Britain, don't realise that that is actually the British application of a European law which requires no such thing. So there are all those things to be worked out. But to stay on message, the point is those 65 million people can still buy what they buy from us if we can adapt One week after the referendum in 2016, six Irish mushroom farmers went bust. Nobody went bust in Britain, by the way. We took a 17% uh, pay cut because the currency slumped. The margin in mushroom production is no better than 1%. I'm not an accountant. I'm not even an economist. But even I know that that probably means you're going to lose some money. And they went bust. They didn't ask for nationalization or handouts. They asked for time to adjust their business model. They did. And three months later, five of the six are back in business. Today the EU is giving Northern Ireland a, draw the phrase, ball of money to fund the construction of a new mushroom facility which will enable Northern Ireland to replace Republic of Ireland exports of mushrooms to the UK and to compete into the south at a depreciated UK currency in the worst-case scenario. So if you think this is complicated, stick with the programme. We have a a lot of work to do here, and it's only starting. A couple of things... We have to look at this as a glass half full. If you're born in draw, your glass is at least half full, otherwise just your, your glass is too small, you go out and get another glass. We're in the business of not wasting this opportunity. We're in the business of understanding what we need to do to succeed. In this very institution, education and higher, higher education research is the perfect example. In Britain, I hate to tell you, Brexit is already happening in third level colleges. EU prof- EU fund holding professors, some of them U- UK, many of them EU nationals, are already leaving. They are been victimised on the streets in what is essentially hate crime, and they're saying, you know what, I, I don't, I don't need to wait around for this. All of that to one side politically, the reality is. Irish institutions, including this great one, have a huge opportunity, and I would say a necessity, to form friendships that can lead to partnerships, that can lead to arrangements that portray the uniqueness of the UK-Ireland relationship. The common travel area will allow people to travel for education, and the arrangements around education funding can provide for the kind of partnerings that you only get when people are faced with a crisis. Uh, education has lived on meagre gruel. Most education institutions were trained subliminally to compete with each other to the death. This is the time when they need to know how to exercise an unexercised muscle called collaboration. So we talk about collaboration. We talk about the opportunity to, to develop our own competences. So Britain has competencies that we can't have. We don't have, you know, natural resources of mining, but we've got brains and hopefully even broadband. Jaguar closed a production line in Halewood, the third of only three, in February, and the next day announced its new World Centre for the Development of Autonomous Driving Technology. Where? In Shannon. Brains and, I hope, broadband. It's my time up, so I'll round out. But you get the point. We have a phenomenal opportunity to actually put our heads together and our hands together and say, we're both in this together. And the solution to one will will certainly provide the solution to the other. You cannot live in the shadow, as Michael D. Higgins said, of another nation, another slightly larger island in the middle of a big ocean between two continents, and not be immune to what the fate of that island is going to be. And Brexit is only a totem, as I close, for a much deeper division at the heart of England. We have stake in that game, and we need to know how that lands, or to be influential with our friends in helping them to solve a massive problem which could hurt us, and we have assets in our brains, and our people, and our talent, and our diplomacy, which will be needed in their in their good cause in the weeks, months, and I dare say, decades ahead. So, thanks, Mary, for the opportunity. I'm glad to be part of the discussion.
0: Okay. We can take up all these points in the discussion afterwards. Our third speaker is Professor Kate Kenny, who has the fascinating title of Professor in Business and Society at NUI Galway. Uh, Kate uh, came back to NUIG, where she taught some years earlier. She came back in, in October from Queen's University, Belfast. She's a truly <coughs> multi and interdisciplinary person. She's a structural engineer a, by training. She's been involved in a startup company, a, and then has a extensive a, a postgraduate research and studies in business and in the social sciences. So, somebody really worth listening to here today. And she is later this year to publish a book that I think we'll all be looking forward to. Whistleblowing towards a new theory, which is coming out from Harvard University Press. So, Kate.
3: Thank you, Mary, for that kind introduction, and uh, and to the organisers of this event. So this works out pretty well, because actually, um, John, you concluded with uh, a nice introduction to what I'm going to talk about. Um, we've been talking about uh, trade, we've been talking about business, I guess I'm going to talk about the trade and business of people, specifically academics, specifically higher education, and the role of... Uh, Brexit and the economic impact of Brexit, and how higher education on these islands will play out and what what things are looking like in that um, in that kind of scenario. um okay, we don't know what kind of brexit we're going to get, however. In higher education, almost as was said, Brexit has already begun. It's like, as Louis Althusser points out when he talks about performative utterances, sometimes statements are made that create something new, that bring something into being by the actual act of uttering before anything else happens. And on campuses, uh, certainly in the UK... Uh, In my experience, this has certainly begun to happen and has been happening really since the run-up to the referendum, uh, even before the referendum. I'm going to talk about that a little bit and then um, how this might play out for Ireland. So first of all, I mean, let's just... Think about the economic impact that universities and higher education have. Are they any use at all for the economy or for society? Well, particularly in Northern Ireland, the two universities, University of Ulster and Queen's, generate 3% of gross value added. They are incredibly important from an economic perspective in Northern Ireland for a number of reasons. And there's recent studies in UCC, for example, that have um, shown that for every euro investment invested in that university, we get five euro return. So yes, they do create economic benefit, but how? It's not like you can build a university in a field and this will generate economic benefit. The money flows to the people. Who are the people? The people are the good researchers, research active academics. They bring the top PhD students, the students. They bring the new colleagues. We know why academics move. We know why clusters of academics form. They form, well they form, they they move for money, you know the the human, but they, they move for the company of other minds. Research shows us they move for colleagues. They move for places that enable them to be free and innovative in their thinking. So if you're interested in the economic potential of universities you need to be looking at the movement of the people that generate that value. Now this is particularly salient in Northern Ireland. So before I was, uh, I left in October, I was running the MBA program at Queen's, which was a fantastic opportunity for, for five years. So I remember sitting around the, the, the board, we, we have our MBAs around board tables, boardroom tables, as you would, and uh, discussing with students. These were bright executives. You know, they could have worked anywhere in the world in their different um, areas of, say, consultancy or accountancy. But they came home to Belfast. And the one thing that unite them across the different disciplines or sectors they worked in was a passion for Northern Ireland and the area and seeing it drive forward economically. And to see the political and potential economic impacts of what was happening in the news at the time was heartbreaking when you think about these individuals. But, you know, we would have speakers come in, like, for example, Steve Orr, who formed um, Catalyst Inc. You know, he'd spent 10 years successfully in Silicon Valley, and he saw the role of the university as a linchpin, as a central locus for talented executives and ambitious people to sort of Orbit around to meet each other, to go to events, to do courses. And he really wanted this for Queens. I believe he said the same to you, you, you know, but <laughs> he would have to. Um, but you can see that you could really see how if Northern Ireland, which we know, is absolutely focused on foreign direct investment and attracting multinational companies, in order to try and break this dependency on public sector employment and income, FDI and MNC is kind of where it's, it's put its hat among among some other industries. The university sector is absolutely key there. And for this to flourish, we have to look at where the people are. Are they staying? Are they moving? Okay, so let's look. We have 43,000 academics from the EU in higher education in the UK at the moment. A full third of UU and QUB academics are EU citizens they're spooked as, as far back well, it, it, as far back as 2016 we learned that you know maybe twenty percent of people were considering moving. The latest figures are twenty uh, re- percent resignations by EU academics are up by twenty percent in the last twelve months and I want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture for you about what it's like what sort of the worldview is what I mean we all speak from subject positions so what's I'm trying to describe to you an academic position so the day of the Brexit referendum first of all everyone's salaries took a hit particularly if you've anyway got a stake in the European Union still a lot of people might have a, a flat or a family um, working in Europe and suddenly the sterling income is depleted I mean, I'm laughing at the weather being so warm because 12 months ago I was on strike outside the gates of Riddle Hall at Queen's because we were all on strike for the pensions and it was absolutely Baltic, which, you know, created a nice sort of fellow feeling as we were swapping gloves and hats and things, but also um, after a while everyone got the flu. But uh, this is because, as you know, the pension strike was um, because of sort of a marketisation of the pension pots and a depletion of that particular benefit in UK uh, higher academic circles. Um, as has been mentioned, European Union funding has been a major support, a significant support, particularly for Northern Ireland universities, as also for Southern. And that support is absolutely fed by North-South relationships. So a full £63 million was brought in from European funding, Horizon 2020, between 2014 and 2016. North-South collaborations. A full two-thirds of those projects of successful Horizon 2020 were partners North-South. This is the money coming into to Northern Ireland. So this is, is really key. And so what, what was the future looking of for all of that for the EU money? Um, well, I went to a workshop. You know, you have these EU funding workshops. You get a consultant over who's been to Brussels and who's met all the people and who knows, you know, how to get you the cash, great, super. So she was sitting around, we were all around listening about how we might apply for our next EU grant. And she said, listen, don't worry. I've been sent over with a message because all the evaluators for the ERC European grants have been sent to prejudice training, so in case they would have inherent subconscious bias against UK applicants because of all of the narratives, negative narratives around, and it was okay intended as a comfort, but quite a chilly comfort that they had to have been sent to this training, even if it was mitigating against bias, and again we had the performativity. Uh, Applicants have been going down in number from uh, EU or UK-based academics for EU money and of course um, a lot of there has been comfort in some of the, the government the UK government saying that they would and also the Irish that, um, that they would cover some of these uh, existing flows of cash but you know that has only ever been in the short term those descriptions about how that might be mitigated against. Okay so let's take a step out of sort of Northern Ireland and look at the islands and see this, this flux are the 43,000 EU academics or some of them leaving If they are, they're bringing economic value. But where are they going? And the narrative is, and it was mentioned, what an opportunity for Ireland. How could we miss? We're the only English-speaking country in Europe after the EU leaves in the case. um, And so, you know, with our sort of um, our, our poet, philosopher, president, isn't this a great place to come and be an academic? And ideally, it would be if it wasn't for that this sector has seen sustained underinvestment uh, since 2008, sustained. So what are we talking about? We're talking about funding that is down by a full third, while student numbers have gone up by a quarter. So 1.5 billion invested in 2008 in the higher education sector in the Republic of Ireland, down to 1 billion in 2017. Meanwhile, student numbers are going up. We have a situation where, you know, precarious labor, academics on short-term contracts make up a conservative 20% of our teaching staff. And so this is from a cold, hard sort of, regardless of any ethical implications of that, that just is detrimental to research culture. Because if you're worrying about getting hours next week, you're not going to be sitting around thinking, well, I'll put in a long-term plan in place to do some research and get some publications out. So... We have that. We have um, slipping down the rankings, you know, in terms of state investment in the Irish education, uh, higher education system. uh, We're near the bottom of the OECD. And so, you know, mommies and daddies look at the FT rankings increasingly. So as do other academics, including these EU potential movers from the UK, they look at this thing. Is Ireland looking so rosy? I'm not sure, but you know where it is looking rosy? Um, the Netherlands. So, in terms of winning the race for producing and uh, producing an English-speaking academic landscape, uh, the Netherlands has been putting a lot of investment, to opening new courses. But all eyes are on the front runner is, Be- is Berlin, in fact, where the Wellcome Trust has now got offices. Oxford University selected Berlin as its EU kind of. Uh, Plan B, if you like. I don't plan B, but at least it's a little offshoot. And so that's where um, the focus is on, which seems like a really obvious trick for Ireland to miss um, and in such fixable ways. So what to do? Well, we had a discussion last night and there's nothing an academic likes more than a good whinge and i'd love to just leave it at the whinge but I'm, I'm 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 sort of tempted to to talk about what we might do about these things as well can we look at this situation and these narratives that brexit have given rise to as an opportunity to relook at northern ireland and ireland and the academic life the academic imaginary that we would like to see and perhaps this is an opportunity for us to be creative. Now, we could be creative like um, one of the professors, a professor in Australia in a business school there was looking for PhD students, so he put out on Twitter, jump the sinking <laughs> ship of Brexit and come over to Australia. I mean, yes, one way of doing it. But, um, but what, what kind of ship would we be actually advertising? Should we do that? Uh, should we being sort of in... in, in, in the Republic. Um, another thing that we might think about doing, the Higher Education Authority and the Royal Irish Academy have put out, of course they have been putting out reports on this, and they've really focused on, listen, we need to keep the programs going, keep Erasmus going, keep the funding going, rather than sort of, there's an also an opportunity to be um, take a step back and maybe rethink these things. So if we're looking for the state to even come up to scratch with investment in this sector, we might be waiting a while if history is anything to go by, there isn't really a position of, of state kind of prioritisation of higher education funding. And prior to 2008, there wasn't either. As we know, the only way to, it seems to get cash out of this state is to leverage it with uh, highly publicised match funding, mm-hmm. as Chuck Feeney and Atlantic Philanthropies did when they kind of took Bertie away from the frowning civil servants and did this deal around Pure TLI in 1998. Perhaps... If EU eyes are looking at Ireland and the border and everything that's going on, if sympathy is high, if the will is there, this is a time to leverage some much funding out for the higher education sector on these islands. But it must be north and south because the big risk for colleagues back in Queens and UU is that UK universities are looking overseas and to Europe Ireland is, Irish universities are also looking east, nobody is looking north, and so any solution should be obviously cross-border and um, it it would make sense, because look, the institutions are already there, you know, we have the same national contact point for a lot of EU funding grants, we have British Council, so I'm going to wrap up there and say this may be a sort of an ideal time It's your phone. (laughs) I'll go on for another half. This may be an ideal time for us to think creatively about where the money comes from, but also to think about what kinds of university places we want to create. Um, The UK I left behind was a place where very strict and stark measurement systems had meant the collaboration between people in the same department was dying off. You two Nobel Prize uh, winners come out and say, you know, I would not have made my breakthrough in today's. Research exercise uh, framework, research and framework um, environment, because I wouldn't have been able to think across disciplines and the free way I did. So perhaps a rethinking of what's best from what we've just had north and south in the Irish sector. Uh, a place for the humanities is at center stage. If we're interested in FTI and MNCs and high tech, I mean, we have to take into account the founder of Etsy, of Flickr, of Kickstarter is an MSc in philosophy. The person who set up LinkedIn credits his humanities background as enabling him to think outside of the box. Skype, Google, in-house sociologists. So. I mean, all evidence is that this is success and the kinds of industries that these islands are desperately trying are humanities focused. They play a really key role. Maybe Brexit offers us the opportunity to take a unique view of uh, the university sector on the island.
0: Thank you very much. Kate. That was quite- I think lots to talk about. Our final speaker is Owen Brennan, who is Executive Chairman of the Devonish Group. Devonish, which is headquartered in Belfast, is a very high tech, very research intensive a, a organization that manufactures high quality a, a, a premixes for the feed and food industry. And picking up on what Kate was just talking about, I think I want to use this opportunity to Thank Owen personally because I discovered this morning it is to d- Owen and to DevNish that we all owe those remarkable archaeological findings last summer at, at Douth. And a, this is an example of, of a company putting significant resources into research in Irish heritage a, of inestimable value. So, thank you very much, Owen, for that.
4: Thank you, uh, Professor Daly. Uh, thank you, Professor Griffin, for the invitation. Ki uh, nocton for putting this uh, on. Uh, thank you to Notre Dame and to NUIG. Uh, it takes a lot of moving parts, uh, working together, to uh, facilitate uh, what I consider to be a pretty important event. And uh, I would reference many of the speakers who have spoken already. We might be, um, in terms of the subject matter here today, falling back on Churchill's address to the House of Commons uh, after the successful conclusion, as Churchill saw it, of the Battle of Britain, where he was careful to point out that, uh, in fact, this wasn't the end. Uh, It wasn't even the beginning of the end, but could, in fact, be said to be the end of the beginning. Uh, So despite the efforts we've all made in the last uh, two, three years, uh, even with a successful conclusion, which uh, I think everybody on all sides, UK and Irish uh, and wider European, are working towards, uh, that would, of course, still only be, I think, uh, proper to describe as the end of the beginning. So I think initiatives of this type uh, are really important. I commend everybody who has... Uh, made it happen. And I would also support those who've already highlighted the fact much more of this will be required. And I say this from a um, a position of optimism. Uh, Despite the challenges, uh, I'm always reminded of the fact that the other other side of challenge, of course, is opportunity. Uh, But opportunity won't walk in and uh, just grab us by the hand. We'll have to walk out and go chasing that opportunity. And we will always be stronger together. And that's in the widest sense of that word. I was asked to address, uh, in particular, how the uncertainty of Brexit is affecting Devonish business now, Uh, Ireland-UK business prospects going forward, Devonish perspective and in general, and uh, possibilities for the future. I do, of course, have to uh, reference back to uh, a comment made earlier about experts. At the start of my business career, I got a very helpful definition of the word expert, which was that it was a word best understood if you divided it in two, X and spurt. Mm-hmm. And X spoke to distance, and usually the greater the distance, the greater the expert. And a spurt, of course, was just simply a drip under pressure. So from that day forward, I've never had any desire to be described as an expert, and I'm not an expert. But maybe it would be just helpful briefly to say, who are we and what do we do? We're an ag tech uh, innovation uh, uh, focused business, Uh, ag tech as in agricultural technology, and we focus heavily on sustainable farming and food production. Now the word sustainability is much used and greatly abused, but essentially uh, the ambition when you're focused on sustainability is to leave the business, the asset, uh, the resource that you work with in a better position when you're finished than when you started. And there are many things we do in the world today that are not sustainable, but that of course creates a great opportunity to change that. As Professor Daly mentioned, uh, we have a significant annual investment in innovation. Uh, we're headquartered in Belfast. Our Research Development and Innovation Centre is located in County Mead. Not that terribly long ago, a uh, very long-standing ambition of mine was to make the UK and the Republic of Ireland our home home market. Doesn't look quite so clever now, post the Brexit decision, which we didn't foresee. Uh, But we're not changing uh, that orientation. We we intend to remain headquartered in Belfast. And we are redoubling our efforts in investment and innovation. And currently, that investment stands at about 30 million pounds a year. Uh, It's grown every year of the 21 years that uh, I've been involved in the business. And I think it's no coincidence that a small business of 5 million, which was very Belfast-centric, a little over 20 staff, now has uh, sales of 250 million in very specialised products and a little over 500 staff. And we see no reason why that rate of growth uh, cannot be maintained over the next 20 years. But uh, that's another issue. We, We describe our sustainability focus in health terms. So I listened with great interest to the health uh, descriptions that were given earlier. We talk about one health, and by one health we're describing uh, plant, animal, human, and environmental health delivered together. And it's from soil to society. Why soil? Well, over 90% of the food that humans consume on this planet comes from our soil. And uh, what we're doing with soils on the planet is not sustainable. President Obama's uh, science advisor described soil degradation as as a greater threat to the economy of the United States uh, than antimicrobial resistance. Uh, We had visitors from Ethiopia on our research center in County Mead two years ago. And they asked us, did we know what Ethiopia's largest export was? And we said we didn't, and they said it's our soil. And of course, it's an involuntary export. It's being washed away and blown away. And these are not easily renewable resources. So we're a little bit in the position of drunken sailors when it comes to our treatment of soil. I've always thought it instructive that in the US, uh, soil is referred to as dirt. Uh, And it's one of those things that's perhaps out of sight, out of mind. Uh, we take it for granted, and we shouldn't. Society. Well, the purpose of food production uh, is obviously directed at every man, woman, and child on the planet. And we're hugely interested in the utility of good quality food to promote good health, to prevent health. And we've already heard about the pressure that health services all over the world are under. And part of our focus in this regard is, is uh, addressing how we can prevent ill health. At the moment, strategically, what we're doing in health is we're aligning infinite demand to finite resource with, we think, perfectly predictable outcomes. Wouldn't it be far better to prevent people becoming ill in the first place, to focus on promoting good health? We have just completed an exemplar project on delivering long-chain fatty acids in very common foods, chicken, pork, eggs, salmon. People who are high status in long chain fatty acids have half the heart attacks, half the strokes, have a 60% lower incidence of Alzheimer's. And the UK and Ireland are low status, high risk, low status. And in our exemplar project, we reduced the high risk population in the human intervention study we conducted 75% by 75% in under six months. So the potential in our local economy, UK and Ireland, is huge. But these are technologies, these are principles, these are ideas for which there is a global requirement. I returned to here yesterday from Kenya, and if you want to see environmental degradation writ large, go to Kenya but if you also want to see the sort of remedies that are being brought to bear in Kenya. So these are problems which have really good solutions. I recently heard President Mary Robinson describe, she gave a a very interesting lecture on climate justice, and she drew attention to the fact that, in fact, farmers uh, were a big part of the climate solution, in her opinion. The example she quoted was the capability of soils to sequester carbon. She believes farmers should be paid for doing that. And I absolutely agree. And again, that capability, from our research, we believe to be pretty inexhaustible. I see no limit to the capability of soil to reverse many of the adverse atmospheric Uh, enrichments of greenhouse gases. So Brexit. um, One of the issues that is perhaps a little irritating for somebody in business is to listen to commentators uh, describe the fact that all the doom and gloom there was about Brexit, in fact, is not true. Well, as a person running a a £300 million business, uh, we felt the economic a negative impact of Brexit in the first month after the Brexit decision, and it was a simple uh, deterioration in the value of sterling, which John has already referenced, and our estimate is that the decline in the value of sterling cost our business uh, £300,000 a month in year one and £400,000 a month in year two, and that's a cash lodge to our business. It won't stop our business, but it certainly will slow us down. The other loss that you get with uh, a currency decline of that nature uh, is a decline in the value of your assets. And again, uh, a very substantial decline in asset value. Uh, and certainly we don't see that reversing anytime soon. Despite the fact that uh, business may not have been as vocal as many people would like to see, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, two organizations, CBI and uh, the Northern Ireland Chamber did ask their business membership pre the Brexit vote uh, for their opinion. And over 80% of the businesses surveyed were against Brexit. So again, just a little local um, colour, two and a half years later I would say that uh, the reason those businesses were against Brexit. Um, has been borne out by our experience as businesses of the business environment since. When I observe the Brexit process at work, for example, at Westminster, I think of one of the straplines of the Brexit campaign, which was taking back control. And if that's what taking back control looks like, maybe it's not such a good idea. However, on the day the decision was made, my instruction, my request of my colleagues, let's make this work. So we are fully applying ourselves to making the process of Brexit work. Uh, And as to the uh, last comments about university funding, as a business person, let me say, I entirely endorse the sentiment that was expressed. Uh, We will be stepping up our collaborations Uh, with universities. Our collaborations with universities has been a large part of our business success. And we will be applying ourselves equally in the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom to that process. And I suppose just to conclude, uh, looking to the future, I think there's uh, great potential for the UK. Going to somewhere like Kenya, great potential for the Republic of Ireland. There's a big world out there. And there are many opportunities in that big world. Uh, However Brexit unfolds, uh, I think these two islands have a very long, uh, established track record, working really well together. And I think everybody concerned with this process should do everything in their power uh, to build on that successful track record. The British Irish Chamber initiative that uh, John referenced I would describe the trade that occurs between the two islands as one of the best-kept secrets on the two islands. Now, there's many reasons from history uh, why that is the case. But it shouldn't be kept a secret. We should speak up for, we should speak out for the benefits that accrue to the two islands. Uh, Many of my British friends over the years would have pointed out to me how how well the Republic of Ireland had done uh, from EU membership. And there was no doubt about that. Uh, What they didn't say but was often implied that we in the Republic of Ireland had done much better than the UK. Uh, But the biggest beneficiary of the Republic of Ireland's progress over that period, in fact, always was the UK. The, The level of trade being done with the Republic of Ireland by the UK is enormous when you consider how small our economy is. And it really highlights uh, the benefits there are to a positive win-win type of and, and to conclude, uh, we bought a uh, definition November 97. We made our first small investment in the United States, where we now have four businesses, in February 98. The positive change I've seen in Northern Ireland since November 97. Uh, has to be seen, in my opinion, to be believed. Uh, Is it perfect? No. Uh, Is it complete? No. Uh, But is it unrecognizable? In 1997, Belfast City Centre would be like a ghost town uh, at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, Now it's a thriving uh, metropolitan area, uh, which is a pleasure to be part of. And I think all of this highlights... The necessity for people to rise above some of the challenges and the conflicts that have been spoken about very extensively here today, and look to building on the progress that has been made, uh, and to, in a sense, finish that job. So, thank you for your attention, and look forward to. Our discussion.
0: Thank you very much, John. I'm now going to call on Alan, John, and Kate to take their seats on the platform. And because of their exemplary uh, timekeeping, we, we have really generous allowance of time for some questions and comments. So it's up to the floor. Yes, Dan. I have a question for, for, for
5: Kate, I think might speak to some points that I was making too, about higher education and, you know, I think there's a theme emerging which is, there's an opportunity for the Irish, there's a challenge. Uh, I like the positive spirit that Owen was suggesting and John was suggesting as well, but it is a challenge. So higher education is clearly is clearly um, So I have one one sort of suggestion and one point. One is I'm interested to know has view on how prudential the Irish government is being at the moment. One, it seems to be putting all its hiring into you know customs positions, hundreds of customs positions, but it also must be concerned about what the tax implications are going to be. The tax take is going to be so. That's not great timing if you're then saying, look, you've got universities that are absolutely being starved of resources. So I just wonder if I'm on the right track with that. My positive proposal is, could we contemplate something which I'm kind of calling a a British and Irish research area? This would complement the European research area, but I just feel that if we we lose that, that productive relationship, which is a productive relationship with Northern Ireland as well as with mainland Britain. That's that's a problem. Is all that's all I will say about it. So I just wanted to offer that
0: as a a possible thing for. Okay. Would you want to start? Do you want to start, Kate?
3: I mean, sure. I think I think um, with these sorts of things, you we want to think creatively about it. And you you know, you don't ask, you don't get. In one way, and I don't know how economically sunny everything was, and the sort of. The 90s when the sort of match funding round to, to drag a dire a dire irish higher education set up into a place with world-class laboratories that was quickly attracting top researchers and uh, really you know generating and so you know in spaces like the one we have here you get to be imaginative and think big and ask big and i suppose if the higher education sector is the game you're in and you, you've got to make big demands on its behalf You've got to play your role in that. So I suppose that's what I would say. But obviously, um, to explore uh, perhaps a common research area might be another one. It just seems too, too tempting, a trick to miss for want of, of, of looking at it that way. And as well, because it ties in, it chimes the melody of kind of Ireland Inc., of the FDI, of the MNC, and all of those sorts of things. In fact, provides an provides an essential support for that.
1: And it, uh, yeah, I, I could go on, but I don't. Um. On the issue of public finances damage, you I mean, you're right. Um, so a, a hard Brexit would impact the public finances. Mm. And I think what you're getting at is, therefore, ha- would have implications for spending. Um, so I'll go back to the models, um, because the model I talked about where, where they talked about economic impact, they also uh, modeled uh, the sort of impact on public finances. Mm. Uh, and what they suggested uh, was that, um, at the moment, the Irish budget is currently balanced, they said that uh, a hard Brexit, disorderly Brexit, you'd see a deterioration, a deficit open up of about 1% of GDP, which I guess on the face of it is fairly moderate. Uh, And I think I heard uh, uh, Pascal Dunhu say that the Irish government would not respond to that in the sense that they would not put on the brakes like Ireland had to do back in, in 2009, 10, 11, et cetera, that they wouldn't raise taxes or cut expenditure in order to swing the budget around, that they'd leave it be. So they'd leave the budget deficit run at 1%, and gradually the economy would recover, and that deficit would go away. They'd have to borrow a bit in the meantime. So they'd allow what's so-called automatic stabilizing the economy to, to kick in. Uh, so that's maybe a, um, a, if, if those models are right, and there's big um, margins of error around that, it's perhaps uh, somewhat comforting that we would not sort of see the, the fiscal consolidation and or austerity that we saw uh, even in the face of a, of a hard Brexit.
2: I might add, we, as a Chamber of Commerce, we've uh, called out for this establishment of a British-Irish uh, research area. It's a quite specific, area, and it's, it's landing on interested ears in, in, uh, in government circles. Um, there is a problem, as has been said, we're, we're the second worst funded education sector in the yeah. European Union, so we're not starting from a great place of uh, credentials in that space. But th- that shouldn't hold us back. We should understand that and move fast to, to fix that. We're not even funding the university sector today for its replenishment and maintenance of its existing capital stock, so we have a long way to go in this. The good news is, even with the 1% Cut back, and the problem with averages like one percent is that if your head is in the fridge and your feet are in the fire, on average you're fine. <laughs> the, the, there's a much more differential damage coming down the track. You know, if, if we if we get this wrong, but even at that, we're in a better place. We have a national plan. We have 114 billion euros to spend over a reasonable period of time. Um, That's a good place to be compared to where we were when people like me screwed up the financial system and the banking sector a few years ago. The difficulty is we need to know how to manage that. We're running a children's hospital project that wouldn't encourage me that we'll dish out €115 billion very well very soon. But the serious point is if we were to spend it anywhere, we should be spending it, and far more than is planned in that plan in the higher education sector for collaborations with our UK university friends. uh,
0: To that, I'd just add... uh, the voters do not rate that kind of activity very highly. I regret to say, you know, if, if it's money that would otherwise be used for housing or for hospitals, um, mm-hmm. and you know, there is an argument. I think we need more. We need having taken. We've taken out too many hospital beds. Uh, it's a very difficult argument to make, um, but I think it's one we have to try and make. There is some there's a program going through I've only seen one announcement under SFI doing this partnership between Irish and and UK universities um, I've only seen one name announced which is you know incredibly bright guy Seamus Davis uh, a, 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 an absolutely stellar scientist who's moving back to his native County Cork from Cornell and will, will hold a joint appointment with Oxford so I mean there is work being imaginative work being done in that space and. Um, I, and there's a lot of intent I mean Queen's uh, University of Belfast is is organising a meeting of the IUA, Irish University Association, in Queen's directly after the 29th I think it's on either on the 30th I don't know what way the dates go but maybe it's the 1st of April of the meeting but that's been done as a statement of all Ireland intent uh, for the sector maybe Brexit or no Brexit now the, there's a question I know at the very back there okay um,
5: the threat of a hard Brexit has exposed the
2: one-dimensionality of a lot of the
5: export sector in the southern Irish economy in particular, never mind in our, but we've that one side from it. In a funny disruptive sort of a way in the long term, might not a hard Brexit be a good thing because it will force diversification? A soft Brexit might lead to people just slipping back into their, the comfort zone that they've been in since
0: Free State was set up. Okay, who wants to take that one on? Uh, then, uh, <laughs> okay, you start uh, out, and then, then I, think, I, think, I think you should all have something to say on that. I think
4: it smacks a bit of uh, sparing the rod and spoiling the child. <laughs> and uh, I would never advocate uh, um, uh, excessive use of the rod. Um, I think um, the, the subject of what type of outcome we're looking for um, has been well uh, elaborated in the discussion that we've had so far. And I certainly, from a business point of view, would say we have spared no effort as a business to internationalise our business, mm. uh, and we operate currently in thirty-five countries. Mm. And in four years' time, that will be fifty. Uh, but it wouldn't um, help our efforts to get from uh, to get to that fifty if we had uh, more difficulty, uh, such as the difficulty I've described, which has already cost us three or four hundred thousand a month. That's a cash loss to a business which reinvests 100% of its earnings in the continued growth of of its business. And that's the Devonish perspective. But I would add to that, that's the perspective of a lot of businesses. That's what businesses do. They reinvest their profitability. Uh, And then finally, uh, just to return to that university point, I would just ask everybody to consider upping our game with regard to university business collaboration. It's one thing to innovate as a university and come up with interesting innovations. But interesting innovations, in in my opinion, should be applied for the benefit of as many citizens of either that state or that region as possible. And that's where the uh, issue uh, raised by Professor Daly starts to get addressed, Mm -hmm. when people see the benefits being clearly delivered to them. And I would underline for everybody here the huge potential that we see. We have never lived, I think, at a time of more interesting opportunity technologically. And that technology is both accessible in a way that I've never seen before, and I'm 58, and affordable in a way that I've never seen before, Mm -hmm. which speaks to the ability to make a greater impact in the field. So I think uh, the very argument that's, that's raised about, well, we're the second worst, that's a really good time to make an ambitious ask. Yes. Let's fix this yeah. and let's be ambitious in our ask yeah. and also ambitious of those who we ask to support us in that effort. Yeah. Yeah. And just to make one final quick point, we led an initiative which um, Uh, culminated in Westminster last Monday week, which sees in the UK um, farming and food being included in the life sciences sector formally for the first time. Uh, And on the very day that that initiative uh, came to fruition, uh, the British government had uh, just voted an additional 1.5 billion of RDI funding for the life sciences sector. On seven o'clock on Monday evening, farming and food was not eligible to apply. At nine o'clock on Tuesday morning, farming and food was being encouraged to apply. Mm -hmm. So there are strategic things that we can all do uh, that uh, I think will will serve everybody concerned.
2: John, can I just take the the trade point one more time? If it's about um, a geographic diversification, you know, all our eggs in the UK basket, I I do understand that point, it's very reasonable. Um, Today, um, as Alan I think said, you know, around about sixteen percent of our export by value go to the UK. It's not that long since that was twenty five percent, and it's not that long before since it was thirty three percent. And indeed, in 72% 72% when I was a kid. It's not that our exports have reduced, we've increased our exports to other markets. Uh, most business people will tell you it's tough to sell in non-English speaking countries, in countries where custom and practice is materially different, etc. So so uh, I'm clearly in the business of advocating UK-Irish trade, but I'm, I have nothing against other markets. I'm more I'm realistic about how, how hard that is for lots of businesses, and we take the great number of Irish firms who don't trade in the UK at all, let alone any other market, and we say it's as easy to trade in the next country as in the the next county and I'll give you one tiny last example on this a thing that we haven't really opened up so far I'm in the business of saying there's even more business for Irish firms in the UK while there is elsewhere and I'll give you an example of the kind of stuff it's not just about selling stuff to Mrs you know mother of a family in 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 uh, Motherwell, or wherever that is in the middle of England. It's about saying, what does England, and I mean England in this regard, do that we can't do? Britain is one of the world's greatest trading nations. It has been for since colonial times, for all sorts of reasons. It, that has enabled it, on the back of EU trade deals, by the way, to access trading contacts all over the globe, which it kind of had, but the EU reinforced its license to deal with those. To give you an example, there'll be a company in the middle of England today importing widgets from South Korea by virtue of a trade deal. But it has, it's, it's valuable to the Koreans because they know Britain. They regard Britain as an engineering powerhouse. So the EU license for that widget is held by an English company for distribution in England and the European Union. From next year, or after the transition period, that may not, no longer be the case. An Irish company is as well placed to pick up that license, which it wouldn't have got otherwise on its own because we're more distant, to hold that license for Europe and Britain in partnership with that originating UK company. So so it's one of the myriad of new things that we're going to open our eyes to and say, you know what, we're sitting next door to a market, which is a market to, towards other markets for Irish firms, both importing and exporting. So I'm with you on the need to diversify to other markets, but there's loads more than the one next door to us right, right there today.
0: Do you want
1: to add to that? Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um, I mean, there is a that adjustment diversification involves adjustment costs, and I guess the quicker it has to happen, the higher those costs. So. If it is to happen, we'd like it to be spread out over, over a long period of time. Um, that said, it's not, it's not clear that uh, Ireland, um, it, it sells mo- its trade with the UK is more than it should be in some way. If you, if you look at countries around the world, what's the most important thing that explains their trade, the bilateral trade? Uh, is it the income levels of high-income countries trade with each other, or is it language, or stuff like that? The, the most important factor is um, geography, proximity. Countries trade a lot with each other. Um, and therefore, we should be trading a lot with, with, with the UK. That's um, uh, um, so, there is, so there's something natural about that. But I, I think whether it's a hard or soft Brexit, it will force diversification. Uh, and uh, ultimately, we will uh, we will end up selling more of our product to, let's call it, continental Europe. And I think John is right in that that involves challenges, breaking into new markets, speaking languages, that, a lot of which we don't speak now. Oh, oh. Uh, and... Um, but if if that can happen more gradually, right. rather than uh, in four weeks' time, uh, I think that, that that would be better. Hmm. Yeah. Uh,
3: uh,
0: yes. As I <laughs> mentioned,
2: models, I talked about models. What are the unpredictables that the models
1: don't take count of? Um, I guess what, if we're talking about all hell breaking loose in four weeks' time, they won't be able The uh, models can't... Capture the sort of disruption on the ports and, and stuff like that. They just just can't do that. Uh, confidence is one they don't grab that well. Um, will people? Um, will we a sudden collapse in confidence, business confidence or consumer confidence? Uh, they try to they try to put in some numbers for that, but uh, but who knows? And the big one then is financial markets. We we uh, very difficult to to judge how financial markets are going to react, and we've seen before. In crisis, that that when financial markets get into a panic, that can lead to snowballing effects that create its own problems, and that stuff is, is difficult to uh, is is very difficult to model.
0: Yes, Simon, um, Alan, a question for you as someone who covered the, and worked on the
2: fallout from the economic crash: How much do you think, uh, if it comes to it, that Ireland has to for substantial
4: EU support, exceptionally, whatever? for Irish farmers, beef farmers, from Europe. How much do you think that uh, the fact that we took medicine and hard medicine after the financial crash would play in our favor in terms of goodwill being shown by Europe, in terms of the scale of a, a potential future bailout that might have to help certain sectors Brexit?
1: Um, I mean, I think the, the, the argument that we would make is that we're disproportionately affected. Uh, I think mean, that's a strong argument. Um, on the goodwill uh, I, I, for sure I think if you look um, if you look say um, and i give you an example of the promissory uh, note deal which you which, which you know very well um, that was clearly something that was beneficial for Ireland, and that presumably wouldn 't have happened unless there was uh, some goodwill from from europe towards ireland so when, it may well be that um, that um, Europe, um, there is goodwill, and Europe is supportive. But the other, the other point, though, is that uh, in Ireland, is, the economy is doing very well. So uh, it's not that we can sort of go cap in hand and say things are things are really grim here. We need a whole lot of help. Um, mm-hmm. The Irish economy is at full employment uh, and is, is growing quickly. Uh, so I think ultimately, um, in terms of diversification and and managing and and Uh, Moving our exports more to continental Europe—that work we really have to sort of do ourselves. I mean, it's up uh, to—it's our own responsibility to to get that done.
0: Can I can I follow up on Simon's question? I mean, basically, the impact is not is is going to be very is not going to be evenly spread. It's going to be very much concentrated in sectors and in Mm. industries, agri-food, border areas, and so forth. And we've been talking about what, a, what Europe can do to help us. Um, what kind of measures do you, do you feel will need to be put in place, be it with domestic or European resources, in, 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 the, in the worst hit sectors? Well, In,
2: in the medium term, um, an industry like food and agribusiness would be so hit in a worst case mm. because, as Alan pointed out earlier on, the mm. WTO-based tariffs are essentially mm. pointed at the food sector. Uh, beef and dairy, in particular, and uh, the, you, you would have no choice but to make serious long-term adjustment mm-hmm. to the business model. Mm-hmm. But, but there are already other things that that will oblige that. We were chatting this morning about the impact of climate, mm-hmm. thinking on how our business model works mm-hmm. and and how you can move that from hazard to challenge and then to opportunity. Mm-hmm. To say, if you think about that the right way, and Owen mentioned it, I think, in his remarks mm-hmm. about how farming can play a positive contribu- mm-hmm. contributing role to uh, responding to the to, to reality of what's now understood as, as climate change. So so you're talking about uh, fundamental business model adjustment. You need a long time for that. Do, and yeah. uh, picking up on uh, on Simon's uh, question and Anne's response, I mean, I, I think we're in, in good order with the EU in terms of readiness for a state aid package, mm. uh, but it would take a lot of state aid for the kind of magnitude of change that a worst-case scenario would bring. Yeah, yeah, OK.
4: Uh, do you want to add to that? Uh, I, would, um, I think what um, is required when you're faced with uh, a situation like this uh, is support for a purpose. Yeah. Uh, most problems can be dealt with, provided you have the time to adjust. Uh, so how the case is made and what the case is, uh, and I would add just uh, to what I had said earlier. Um, about climate, uh, to do nothing is not an option. Mm. And we approach uh, our work in that area from the standpoint of doing the right thing, proving to be a good thing to do. Mm. And when it comes to climate, uh, we go on to say that um, we should think about environment as a profit center, not as a cost center. And our experience to date in the extensive innovation that we've done in this regard is the adjustments, while they're substantial, typically yield uh, a financial dividend as well as transforming the environmental credentials of the products that flow. Uh, so those things typically uh, require, um, you know, a, a cash support for a period uh, to get, because it is transformative change we're talking about. But I, I, would, I would absolutely encourage everybody, as I've kept saying, uh, to be ambitious about this, because I think there's not just an opportunity to transform our own position, but these are uh, products and techniques and technologies for which there is a global demand. And I think over time, the um, opportunity in business and academic terms is really very substantial. I think we're really well placed to play a role in this.
1: The other thing we would want from Europe is for Europe to keep growing over yes, the next yeah, few years because yeah. um, Brexit is, is a, a negative shock. Mm. We don't want a second negative shock, i.e. your area are mm-hmm. going into recession at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, and if we're trying to tilt our trade gradually away from the UK towards continental Europe, uh, that's much easier to do if, if Europe is, is growing.
0: Absolutely. And there, uh, something came up this morning um, in your own domain. Uh, the next head of the European Central Bank, I think, you know, and and, and the policies that the bank puts into place uh-huh. may, may be very critical I in that with regard. Uh, it's a question there. If-
4: Well, I, I always uh, say that uh, predicting the future is, uh, is uh, notoriously uh, uh, difficult uh, and I, I, uh, I have proven to be very bad at it. Um, but I, I think it's worth considering that um, uh, no matter how you model and how you predict, there's a substantial amount of what transpires that uh, turns out quite different than what is expected. Uh, and in amongst that, there will undoubtedly be uh, significant opportunity as well. So when you're, when you're facing what looks pretty challenging, I think it's human nature to go to the negative. Uh, but I, I, again, I think it's important uh, to obviously apply ourselves. And one thing I didn't say in my remarks, I think we should also acknowledge the fact that a great deal of uh, great many people have worked enormously hard in the last two and a half years to navigate all of this. And I think those efforts, in fact, have been fruitful. You know, it mightn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that has to be commended. Uh, And I think we have to resource that effort for the sort of five to 10 year period that John is referring Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, no matter how big the challenge is, provided you resource the process around dealing with that challenge properly, both in terms of time, money, and human resource, most problems actually can be navigated, and really well. So I think we, we, we would have done better in 2008, 2009, if we'd been a bit more proactive about some of those areas. Uh, in fact, when you get that 1% decline, it's a, it's a real good time to step up your investment, because it's needed then. You know, there are, mm-hmm. Now, how you do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think it's worth bearing in mind, that's when you need the investment. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, right then. Yeah. 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 Anybody else want to add to that? Is there any final question? Yes, there's one here, yes. Right. Um, thank you for all the interesting presentations. Perhaps one question on the border
3: corridor that now been mentioned as the one region that would definitely um, suffer following the Brexit, whether it's hard or not. Uh, do you see any way that
1: that region, as dependent as it is on agribusiness, comes out on top of this situation, or is it a matter of it's going to be hard for them, no matter what?
0: Okay, who wants to take it on?
2: Um, everybody wants Northern Ireland to succeed. I mean, it is a, it is absolutely striking, and we, we've we've stopped even remarking on it that throughout this process, since even before the referendum, everybody in the European other twenty six joined in the chorus of saying, well, let's make sure that Northern Ireland ends up in the right place here. there are projects today that Northern Ireland could be getting on with to better itself and to better its people in terms of getting the planning permission in for an electricity interconnector or for a motorway someday from Dublin to Derry, etc., etc., and four or five other big economic driver projects. We don't need Brexit or Brexit resolution to solve any of those. We just need good people to get on with the mandate that they have to run their own country. So I'd, I'd note that, first of all. And Owen commented earlier on, it's really significant that the business organisations of Northern Ireland who never, ever spoke before because of so many endemic issues about speaking out in Northern Ireland, finally came out a few months ago, along with the unions, by the way, which has definitely never happened before, business and unions together, and farming, and now universally have a consensus to say, can we get on with helping our province here? So everybody wants it to succeed. If we land in the right spot post-Brexit, Northern Ireland could be, as they say, the Singapore of the West. And with the 12.5% tax rate if they want to run their own economy under that rate, with a common travel area, with cross-border incentives from Europe, with every trick in the book, and Steve and his colleagues can take that and do the right things with it for the benefit of everybody.
0: Um, I mean, there are short-term shocks that are going to be very significant if there's any kind of... uh, barriers to to trade and movement. I mean, the dairy sector, the border was never drawn with uh, with any economic rationale behind it. The lines are weird. And it did (coughs) disrupt huge economic uh, networks that were long established. And uh, since the 1990s you have recreated an all-land economy which has been particularly significant in terms of dairy processing is, is, is the most obvious one. Milk Milk wanders everywhere uh, across the border there 's this giant coop that uh, that straddles both sides of the border and Once you start putting any kind of barriers in place uh, the, the disruption that is caused by that is, is 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 quite monumental and its disruption of what is irrational in terms of spatial geography and everything else is is a rational logical area it 's it's, it's an area that I think will remain dependent more dependent on 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 the agri-food sector than other parts of of, of the island. Uh, there is no great. They're close to large urban centres. They're not that far from some universities, some higher education sectors. But I mean, the knock-on effects in Dundalk, I T, for example, uh, from the from that referendum are, are uh, were quite shocking. I mean, it's it's exactly the kind of stuff that you were talking about, Kate. Uh, I know somebody who, I mean, uh, literally within a month of that referendum, a whole slew of partnerships and research projects collapsed because nobody. You could see where they were going next so um, I mean it, it is an area that has been diversifying and uh, I mean I, I grew up I grew I grew up in Carton cross which uh, you know is 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 about 10 miles from Co and and um, so I understand the economy there, and uh, one, uh, under, the, under the single market and everything else, I can tell you one dynamic: uh, the smuggling industry uh, uh, found life much more difficult. But if anything comes up in its place, there is a new—you uh, know—the smuggling sector will, will 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 boom again, and it's it's not one that is in any way beneficial to any anybody uh, unless you're a paramilitary or something like that. Um, so it is a sector that has been. Developing, There is a corridor that you can certainly see Dublin-Belfast that has an awful lot of potential and there are other things that can be done. But um, And it has been diversifying, but it, it does require some benign environment to do it. Uh, are there any... OK, I think at this point I just want to... Thank you for your questions in the audience. I want to thank the panel. It's been a, a very remarkably diverse and stimulating panel, so it has. And uh, Dan, do you want to say anything to us?
5: Just to welcome people to the reception taking place outside before uh, the session with Maria McGuinness. Who's and here? We're very, very delighted to welcome you. We're looking forward to that very much. So, uh, thanks very much. Of course, Paul, be so, look okay. course, that and can you out.
0: just join with me in thanking our wonderful panel? Yeah.
5: Thank you.